Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is day four of story building the the novella, and today we're going to talk about the uh, mini plot. And one of the benefits of the mini plot is that it gives you just a little bit of structure, and that's really mostly all you need in in the novella. But well, it's it's all I need. I mean, because I'm going to write twenty five to thirty k. I know I need. I mean, depending on, that's the thing, depending on what it is, I probably need between 10 and 15 plot points. And that's not including things, um, that's not including GMC. That's just little events. But when I'm building a plot document or a zero draft, and I rarely zero draft for a novella, I have to be careful because if I stick a, a sentence like, and here's a court scene. <laughs> I can't say that that's 2K because there's no way in hell that's 2K. That's 10K. And so if I'm going to write 10K, I mean, if you can, a court scene in a novella. I mean, I did it in flight, but I had to be, I had to be stingy as hell with the words. You would not believe how much I cut out of flight um, in just the court scene. And it's just like, because court scenes are, are interesting and they're intricate and they're involved and there's usually um, a lot of information that you get to, you know, throw around. And it's just, it's, it can be really, you know, if you, if you put your back into it, it's going to be fairly long. So uh, I know. A court scene could be 10K or 15. I mean, it could be, it depends on what all you have to cover, right? Um, yeah. So estimating word count can be difficult. When it comes to adding something like that plot element. But honestly, the most difficult thing that I do on Rough Trade is write a novella in the Harry Potter fandom. That's a big-ass wordy fan. And like Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. It's hard to write a novella and get it right. I mean, you can write a little something, and but there's this tipping point. You write a 4 or 5k you know, little short story. It's real cute. Bilbo and Thorin in a little hot tub thing, kind of, you know, in the mountain. It's cute. You're hovering one sentence away from 100K. Gotta put that down right there, Kara. Just just put it down. Put it down. If you don't put it down, there's going to be garden babies any second. <laughs> hey, hey. You can do garden babies quick. <laughs> Well, some people could do garden babies quick. I don't think I'm one of them. Yeah, I mean, I don't think. I mean, I I don't think the um, like the that first the first Hobbit story, Dwabbit story, yeah, Cabbage Patch Dwabbit story I read was uh, the field, the Good Earth by the Fields Whale. I, I'm pretty sure all that first story was fairly on the was on the novella side. I'd have to go actually look it up for sure. But yeah, but novella is different than the five k limit we had. Because I had Bilbo and Thorin in that little bathtub, and I was teetering. Because if, I mean, I I feel like I was one sentence away from, I don't know, forty k. Yeah, fifty k. It's a problem. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, because it's the Hobbit, and it's a big fantasy fandom, and those fandoms are sometimes it's difficult to discern. Um, sometimes. The word count. Sometimes you also have like a moment when you realize that if you put a plot point in and that if you do, if you, that you're going to, you're going to, 
just blow your word count up. Like you had that moment in um, that little one sentence thing you did for uh, way the hell out of Pearl, where you're like, if I yeah. put, if I put, if I put this, it's, it might seem innocuous, but if I put this sentence in, this is going to be huge. Huge. I would still be writing it. I think I would still be writing it in the background and you guys never would have seen any of it. That doesn't mean I don't want to go back and expand it. Cause I do to be perfectly frank. I think about well, that setup that I really enjoyed. It was good. It was good. I really enjoyed it too. And the title, I the title amuses the hell out of me. Yeah, the title is great. I found it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I feel better already. It's a display font. Oh, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do like those 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 thin kind of. I don't want to say fat font. You know, they have the fat letters, but they're with thin line. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. But sometimes like, um, you do have that moment in a short story where you're teetering on the edge of something a lot bigger that you're going to have to stop and plot. Because those one sentence ones, I really didn't plot them. I, I had the idea kind of come into my brain and go, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to this, this, and this. And then I sit down and I wrote it. Because they were supposed to be kind of like palate cleansers. And also, you know, we, when we were exploring the idea of us both having a very specific prompt and to see what we would do with it and see how close we would get to each other. And I think it probably, um, which one do you think we did the most different on? The most different. Um, well, the most the same was the, the, um, <laughs> was uh, the Ian Tony one. We, to the point that when people describe the stories, I don't know which one they're talking about. Um, trying to remember all of them. So I'm looking at my site so I can see my list of one sentence ones. I feel like that our Hobbit ones were pretty different. They were quite we, different. Um, and I feel like our, it, our um, even though we started with the same scene, that our Hawaii Five-O ones were pretty different as well. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing how um, spurned in us, and no, it's I don't. I mean, I, I I've been told explicitly that I do not pants. Because <laughs> even though I did not write it down, I I definitely had a series of events in my mind that were going to happen. Um, for um for each one of my little plots. My yeah, little I, I do. Prompts. I do think the Hobbit one was probably the one that came out quite the most different, and then the Hawaii Five O. For all that started very similar, it did go quite different. And I think the one we did, actually the second one we did, where with John and Rodney, where John planned to leave, I think those were quite different too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. That's the one that took Lady Holder off the rails repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> Her little panting heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Lady Holder was very different because she had the bell. But, you know, a, uh, a short story is very different from a novella. And a novella, um, while it has the same innate structure as a novel, it is um, a distinct writing experience. Yeah. When I was working on my plot points, because I do, um, because I do plot point based writing, which is I write down the, basically the critical path. This is these are the things that have to happen in order to make the plot happen. Um, now, not all your plot points have to appear on screen. So 
And by that, I mean that sometimes you, uh, it happens in the background or a non, uh, a character who's not around for your main characters is critical, is in the critical path. And then you hear about it later. So you don't have to show all your plot points. Plot point is not about what you show on screen necessarily. Um, it's more of a recognition of these are the things that have to happen in order for the next thing to happen. So if you are trying to get from point A to point B, the the critical path are your plot points. Now, there are other plot events. This is just a terminology thing, right? There are other plot events you might have that are not actually in the critical path. They are not vital to. So that's why I think that it comes for me. That's why I kind of developed that style of plotting is because I have a project management background and we think in terms of the critical path, right? This has to happen before this, before this, before this, before this. And other things may need to happen too, but they're kind of offshoots. And some things can move around like, okay, well, this didn't quite work here emotionally. I can move it to later. Those are events you want to happen, but they don't necessarily aren't in the, it has to happen in order for the next thing to happen. Um, so like if we think about like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, because we've talked about like a, like a critical plot point in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is Harry's name coming out of the goblet. That's a very critical plot point. Now, there, of course, there are plot points before that. You know, the tournament has to happen and that kind of thing. But if you think about um, like some of Harry's interactions with people, some of them, like just think about all the people he talked to in the Goblet of Fire. Some of them are in the critical path. Like it has to happen before the next thing can happen. And some of them think about some things. Would it have changed things if like a certain conversation with Hermione had happened um, a few pages before, or a few pages after? And some things won't necessarily be different for moving something around. So you can have events that are not actually plot points that are more like plot events. Does, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like... When I, I actually did my, I was, I was at the doctor all day. So when I was at the doctor, I was writing up my, um, my plot and like one of the, one of the, one of the things is I put that Tony needs to meet Ronan. Now I, um, I did is at the point in the critical path and the plot point, um, is I put a little a note to myself subplot tony meets ronan somewhere from here after right which means it's not in the critical path that he meets ronan but he can't meet ronan before that point which is why i noted it there because he can't meet ronan before he's on the city obviously and there's nothing right. about the plot because the romance is a subplot there's nothing about where the plot is going that means he has to meet Ronan at a specific time. So it's just, this is the earliest he could meet Ronan. And I just note to myself, subplot could kick off from here anywhere. And because it's not in the critical path, I don't list it as a plot point, but I just noted it that I can't begin this subplot until here. And part of that's to remind myself that I have a subplot. So... <laughs> Because sometimes when you're writing, when you're in a groove, especially when you're when you're really digging deep into your main plot, sometimes a subplot can can fall away, or you can write yourself into a situation where your subplot no longer makes sense. And you did do that with a um, um with a story where your pairing, by the time you got to it, was like, nope, 
nope, nope, nope. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, no. And the pairing was a subplot. So it was more in the plot. It was more in the critical path of the plot for the second story. But in the first story, it was just kind of getting the romance started, but it didn't fit. Um, so, but it ultimately, even though I was devastated <laughs> by the whole thing, it didn't ultimately affect the way that story had been written because there was nothing in the main plot for that story that had anything to do with the romance. So, um, yeah. What I would say is that some people um, are very concrete plotters. And when they encounter a situation like this um, in their plot, that it no longer works. They are just as quick to go off the rails as a pantser who's written themselves into a corner. Because fundamentally, at that moment, we're all the same. We've done something. We don't know how to fix it. And fuck you. <laughs> right. I'm done. I'm going home. Taking all my toys. Now, frankly, when I was very young, I was like that. And I had to work myself because of my obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and I do a credit medication for this, actually. Um, I've gotten to a point in my life where I can... Um, I can roll with those punches and take out a subplot um, and make that decision and make a surgical strike on my own zero draft. Filter of my characterization like I did with Nebula in Unleash Your Demons. Because there's something there would have been something very viscerally satisfying about having her kill um, um, Obadiah Stane because of what um, because of his potential to be dangerous to Tony Stark. She's very protective of Tony. So it would have been viscerally satisfying to write that, to have him think that this young girl is easy to manipulate and for her to get invited into his penthouse, because that's how I wrote it up, that he was inviting there, her there so he could have a conversation with her about managing her father. So he thinks he has this young, impressionable, isolated homeschool girl in his high-class New York apartment, and he's just invited an intergalactic assassin <laughs> into his space, and he doesn't have a weapon of any kind. And having her kill him would have been very viscerally satisfying. But it did not serve her character. So I took it out. And I don't regret it at all. No appearance in part two. <laughs> Because if I can find some way to get that into part two, it might happen. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know. Because I don't want to take her back. You know? Because she made so much progress. So I don't want her to, digre you know, to digress. Nebula's not going to digress. No, you were red for a lot longer than that. I put you in the sin bin for calling me a pantser. So from whenever that happened until Jilly just turned you off. Did I lose Jilly? I don't hear her. I was muted. What the fuck is oh. wrong with me? <laughs> Queenie was bragging because you let her out of the sin bin. Oh, uh -uh. now she's back in the sin bin. Something's, I don't know. Something's up with my sin bin. I think so, too. Something's wrong with it. There is something wrong with it. I'll have to diagnose that later. But there was a moment when I was um, working on one of my stories. And I had a, I, all of a sudden, I felt, I, this is how I felt. It wasn't real. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, it wasn't real. But I felt like I had tripped headlong into a plot hole. And I wrote Kira, and I said, I've got this giant plot hole in my story. I don't know what to do. And we got actually got on the phone. And she said, what's the problem? And I said, 
The problem is, is my climax of my story involves Ian shooting Ziva in the head, and I just don't have a good reason for him to have been following her around. It makes him seem like a creeper. And she says, well, why was he following her around? I said, well, because Tony commented that he thought he had seen Ziva. And there's a long, long silence. And Kira says, well, don't, I mean, he knows that Ziva's not supposed to be in the country, right? And I was like, yeah. And Ian knows that she's with Mossad, right? I'm like, yeah. And he knows that she's angry at Tony, right? I'm like, yeah. She says, and you think it's unreasonable for him to be following her around covertly to try to figure out what she's up to? And I said, shut up. <laughs> I was like, shut up. <laughs> no, apparently not. Because she got wrapped around the axle just a little bit around the idea that Tony would tell Ian the the full of the situation because it was classified, which was accurate. But Ian Edgerton doesn't need all the information. All he really needs to know is that's my man. This bitch is a threat and she shouldn't be here. And so I didn't have a plot hole. I just thought I had a plot hole. But sometimes you need somebody to talk you down off the ledge, you know, before you lose the plot. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended, yeah. <laughs> And it would just be one bullet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, oh, for me, the novella, because of its short structure, I honestly need to pay more attention to my plot than at any other point. Because there is a moment when your novella stops being a, no stops being a novella and becomes a novel. And if you want to write a novella, then there is a certain um, word count you need to hit. For me, I think 25K is the, is the sweet spot. Um, for some people, for some publications, that's like 5K too long. <laughs> you know, But for me, 25K is the sweet spot for a novella. That's just my personal goal, unless I'm looking at being published somewhere and they have a goal of, say, 15 or 20, and then I'm, okay, that's my goal, 20. <laughs> yeah, I would, if, somebody, if somebody said that if they wanted a 15K novella, I'd be scratching my head and going, do you know what a novella is? Yeah, because I don't think anything like 20K is a novella. I think it's a short story. Yeah. But magazines vary. Yeah, they do. Standards vary because I've actually seen some publishers. To me, to me, a novella is twenty to forty k. So for me, the sweet spot is thirty. That's what I'm because I like to aim in the middle. But so if if, a, if sixty to ninety is a novel, I try to aim for seventy five because I know I'm wordy, but I also don't want to come up short. So I try to aim in the middle. That's where I try to go. But I've seen some publishers that say forty k is a novel. But then you look at these publishers who, who say that, and they are the ones who publish novels that are over 100K. So half that would be a novella to them. I mean, if they're looking at a 120, 150K no, um, um, science fiction novel or fantasy novel, and you throw 40K at them or 45K at them, they're like, well, that's a little short. Look at this little novella she sent us. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Look at this baby novel she sent us. And for science fiction and fantasy, 60K might be a novella for that genre. But in general, I really would think of, I actually think if you've written science fiction, you shouldn't be probably writing a sci-fi, a, a hardcore sci-fi novella. doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, Unless you're doing like an episode series and you're building, 
Um, I can see that working really well. Um, I've seen some publications doing it, and a lot in uh, you science fiction magazines used to do it. The Murderbot series, I think, is a good representation. I think I've read one of those. I'm not sure. See, Masterclass. This is Masterclass defines um, a novella as ten to forty thousand. I just want to just go and slap whoever put that, wrote that, t- even type that up. I mean, because for me, um, anything under 20 is a short story. That's just my personal hit on it. But I've seen magazines ask for novellas at 10K. You know, so, you know, digital magazines and even like hard copy magazines used to do it. So it really just honestly depends. Um, but if you're going to be doing a hardcore science fiction um, novella episode series, you got to dig deep. So when you're you um, put a lot of work into that. Yeah. Speaking I, of, I had to retailer the character profile um this morning and make a company profile for the company who's colonizing Mars for my series. Of course, you, you got because that company to do. is practically a character. <laughs> <laughs> but when we're talking about for the series about like the the number of work, the number of plot points you have room for, we're generally talking in the twenty to forty k. Like how much how much plot space you have which is why in a novella you really only have space for one subplot you don't have room for um a bunch of shenanigans when your main goal when you when you write a novella is to have a short tight story package so that your reader doesn't feel cheated or feel like they missed something and then they then the next novella comes out and they're thinking that asshole they're just trying to make money by making a novel into four parts i'm not buying that shit so these novellas really desperately need to stand on their own especially in the professional market and the best way to do that is to not focus on the same character every single time you come out of the gate with a novella Kind of shift it up, like I did in Sentinels of Atlantis um, with the episodes. They're not all about John and Rodney. I spread the the characters out, and I had a really large ensemble cast. You'd want to do the same thing with an episode series. Um, um, in a professional market, you'd want to vary up your main character, um, and use each novella to build your world story that you're telling in the background. If you wanted them to be connected in the episode episodic fashion does that make sense um now one of the things you have to be careful of when you're plotting a novella and remember july is sort of novella it's not exactly a novella because i think 10k is still the minimum right Mm -hmm. so it's somewhere between short story and short novella but i always tend to skew towards the short novella side of that because i actually used to have this 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 particular challenge as a short story challenge in rough trade but i had a hard time meeting just staying under 15k so i raised it to 20 but then i had a hard time staying under 20 and i was like fuck it it's gonna be 25 and that's it kira that's it (laughs) you need to calm down kira marie (laughs) that's right (laughs) i have been giving out middle names lately be careful you might get one (laughs) it's entirely possible if 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 I got I got one picked out for Daisy already. I think Daisy needs a last name. But I think May is her last name, so I, th- I think you're going to agree with me though. Oh, that's just so in cute. the future, in, 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 in case we need it. Yeah, for when <laughs> we need it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so 
I think that um, learning how to estimate your word count um, in the plotting process is, and it's a skill that I think a lot of us struggle with. And even I, I mean, I, even I miss the mark sometimes by a lot. And I've just learned that I cannot trust myself when it comes to Harry Potter. Yeah, you really can't. I, I can't either. I couldn't, I can't. 25K. The, when I wrote my first Harry Potter story, it was supposed to be 10K. And it was 25. And that was in challenge. And I was just sitting there so flustered with myself. And, you know, it's really demoralizing, actually, to to have a goal and to miss it so spectacularly in public. <laughs> yeah, you're like, and you're sitting there going, I don't even know what's happening. I mean, you just kind of go, I don't even know what's happening anymore over here. Sorry. I mean, I got really, really bent around the axle about my word count during November because I had a goal. And even though like in private, people were laughing at me when I announced it, I was like, oh, this is my goal. Damn it. This is my goal. And then I found, and I, I just, I overshot it by 50K. I don't know why. And I even took out two different court scenes that I might put back in during the second draft. Just to be real. And then I took out a whole subplot about Tyr. Um, that might go back in. Because fuck it. <laughs> I can't. I'm just so frustrated. Ah. But I actually did um, a pretty good job estimating um, both of my quantum bangs so far. I wasn't too far off on the quantum bang thing. I'm almost done. I'm about 2k from finishing my quantum bang. Yay. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I mean, yeah, I would imagine the two court scenes I took out would have been, well, maybe 30K total. My goal for all the world is to come out of the rough draft, um, the second draft phase under 200. <laughs> if I put that subplot back in about um, Rizelle and Tear and the the half fairy, um, it, it might ruin the winged babies for, for Julie, but. Because <laughs> originally, um, her father. Um, gets really bent or her uncle um, was trying to use her. There's nothing, she didn't know anything about it and she she never actually appears. Um, she never actually appears um, in the narrative or even in my plot. Um, but her uncle was trying to use her to manipulate Roselle. And when he, when Michelle started showing a really deep interest in Tyr, Warhide, um, his uncle tried to kill him. It didn't work out. Because the damn man's name is Tyr Warhide. He got his <laughs> name for a reason. <laughs> he got his name because he fought a full-grown dragon in the defense of his mother. Before he was an adult. And he won. Um... Because that's a that's a motherfucker right there. But uh, it, um, I, um, yeah, but I had to take it out because I was like blowing my word count and it was really frustrating and I wanted to finish it. I didn't want to come out of rough trade with another unfinished work in progress. I just, <sighs> the reason I wanted a short word count was so I could make it and then I'm done. I'm done. Uh -huh. I did not want to come out of rough trade again with another unfinished project. It was just, <sighs> So while you guys might have been the shenanigans that, that took place on my story, I I found it very upsetting sometimes, honestly. I, I mean, I, I would, I'm with you. When, I, when it doesn't go the way I want, on the other hand, I have to say, when you signed up at the 75K level. Shut up, Jillian. I was like, 
I even I was like, I had a plan. Did you intend to sign up a 75K or is that a typo? Yeah. Yes, I wanted it to be 75K. But see, I had seen your plot document and I knew you were crackers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just ridiculous. But I still had a plan. It did not survive engagement. It rarely does with... But I do have a couple of Harry Potter stories that are that, are that range. 75K. Yeah, I think blank space is that range. But you, it didn't have that plot document. No, it did not. It didn't have no. time travel. Girl, time travel. I think that if I want to hit 75K, then I, my maximum number of plot points for a plot for a zero draft is 50. And you can't have time travel. And oh. no time travel. <laughs> None. None. I, I do want to write a time travel, though, where Harry Potter um, time travels as the master of death and raises himself. Don't you dare say it's going to be 75K. I'm just going to laugh you right off the server. Now, that, now there's no way that one's 75K. That's probably like a three-part book series. Yeah. Um, which I don't want to start another one of those either. So that's an idea that probably won't ever get written. So anyways, let's discuss the parts of the mini plot. Um, don't think I haven't considered that too. Um, I'm really enamored with my with Jilly's casting for Death and my idea that um it's Varda. Uh and I um the idea of, of him race um basically being raised in Eru's in court by death or you know Zir's court um by death really amuses the hell out of me. Yeah. He basically I like the idea of death raising Harry. I think that's great. So I don't know. I mean, they they would be like, I don't, you know, that they would be drawing straws to see which one of them got to go go kill Dumbledore before Harry got sorted. (laughs) 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 And she's like, "Well, I have death. I should get to do it." Well, you don't understand. This guy's a real asshole. I think I should get to do it. Meanwhile, Mahal and Varda are fighting over it. That's time and death. And Yavana goes and does it. <laughs> Y'all are just going to sit there and talk about it. <laughs> Fuck all this shit. <laughs> she gets back. She's sitting there. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. To- um, anyways, so the parts of your plot, um, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we have talked about this before. Um, and this this structure it has play across your narrative. It is your narrative structure for your novella or your novel. It is also your narrative structure for your chapter. And it honestly should be the narrative structure for your scene. Your scene should be discrete pockets inside bigger pockets. Inside a really nice coat called your book. (laughs) And each of them should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And rounding these out into these little discrete packages um, allows you to, for me, it allows me to isolate mistakes. If if I'm making a mistake, um, it's really easy for me to see it if I keep an eye on my structure. 
I think one of the tightest projects I have on my fanfiction site would be No Enemy Within, the first book in the Atlantean Legacy. And it has a very concise, tight plot. And I've had more than one person, and I'm really flattered by it, tell me that it seems longer than it is. And that was accomplished through word economics. I made very concise choices about words, about scenes, even though Chris made me add some sex scenes. I mean, because there were not, um, there was no sex in the original second draft of um, Lantean Legacy. Let's not even discuss the first draft because that was basically a zero draft. Um, the second draft didn't have any sex scenes. Chris was like, we could put a blowjob here. <laughs> she literally put in the little notes that insert blowjob here. <laughs> there could be some sexing here. She was like, put some sex in there. But that particular novel is very, very tight and very concise. And because there's nothing extraneous about it, it, it tells a really big story. And um, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. Uh, but I do believe it best, some beginning, the middle, and the end um, structure. Sometimes I'll be honest in fan fiction, I kind of go off the rails a little bit because my id gets in the way. And, you know, fan fiction writing is a vanity for me. I do it because it pleases me. Uh, and I don't owe anybody any explanations. And if I do something crazy in my fan fiction, I don't answer to anybody but myself. <laughs> and that can give you sometimes you go a little bit crazy, you know, and have a body count on your fig. And act surprised. What do you mean you don't like my body count? Would you like to be added to my body count? I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't put a body count on a professional work. <laughs> it would be bad. I mean, it depends upon but the... Funny. I mean, but it probably funny. depends upon the, the genre, maybe. <laughs> I write a murder series and just label the books, like name the books by the number of people who die in it. Yeah. So I want to clarify. I said I want to clarify something that I said earlier about plot points, um, being the things that have to happen in order for things to happen. I'm talking about major events that have to happen in order. Like I, yeah, I, like because like nothing else could have happened in the Goblet of Fire the way it did if Harry Potter's name hadn't come out of the goblet. Right. So it's like, what are the points at which things turn? And sometimes it's a little bit there. It can be debatable at what are the turning points in the story, the things that have to happen for the next, to turn the story to the next major thing that has to happen. Um, I think Kira and I even debated once privately about what was the first plot point in the Goblet of Fire. Um, and we each had a different opinion about it, but it doesn't matter because ultimately and it, what, our opinions were actually different than what the person who wrote the article said too. So yeah. it was, it was, it was so subjective to me that we just dumped that whole idea as a podcast because we didn't want to spend three hours arguing. Yeah. About what are <laughs> identifying plot points. So when you're looking at what your plot points are, it's not about listing everything, every single thing. It's about what are the major things that have to happen. So in the story that I was working on, uh, my plot, the first major plot point to me, in my opinion, is one that matters, is when Tony is read in on the Stargate program. Next major plot point is when 
John gets notification of his next of kin. Now there are critical things that have to happen between those things, but each one of those represent a significant turning point. And there's a critical path between them of things that have to happen in order, but the plot points themselves, each of them are very significant because one gets Tony headed towards Atlantis. The next one starts off the next major chain of events, which is that John finds out that his brother's on the city with him. And then it, you know, it goes on from there. Um, then you have to have the constant conversation with dad, you know, dad, and, you know, for a parent, that has to be a really ugly moment. Yeah. Well, it isn't that. In all that those one, lectures, you gave your grown-ass sons about safe sex. Yeah, well, in that one, no. back because, in your face because of a love baby. In that one, no, because it's in the other story. It's in my November story that he has to have the condom conversation with his dad. But in this story, it is Alex. So he figures out. He thinks at first that it is a secret baby that it is. Oh, so he oh. thinks at first and he thinks it's a secret baby, but then he finds the birth date and he realizes that it's Matthew's twin. They think it's a, they, they think one thing and then something else. And then, so the next significant plot point. Is this the woman they think Matthew's twin is dead? Probably. They think it's likely dead. Yeah. He's likely dead. Yes. It, he, okay. he is likely dead. Um, so, but, and the thing is, now when I was working on it, the problem is, is between these plot points, right, those, those things, there's some decisions I have to make about how much intrigue I'm going to put into this plot and who's responsible for what. Because if I want a really well fleshed out antagonist, I'm going to blow the novella word count entirely. Because a well fleshed out antagonist, would require a little bit more intrigue in the plot as opposed to just being the generic of the trust because the trust is kind of a formless entity you know yeah anyway, it, it, it's a good villain in a story good antagonist a good build but actually the antagonist truly winds up being the villain is certainly um the trust but the question is then who's the antagonist and so who is pushing against them and i that's where i have to be careful because if the antagonist the, the counterpoint to them is too immersed with the villain then it's going to create word count bloat because i'm going to have to address all that and resolve that whole plot line with the trust right whereas if i make it just the trust and there's like nobody on the city conspiring with the trust then the trust doesn't that that doesn't actually have to be resolved. That makes sense mm -hmm. because I don't have to. If the trust is just doing shitty things like the trust always does, I don't actually have to solve that case. But if there's somebody on the city working with the trust, I do have to solve it. So you have to be careful about how much complication you put into your your plot because the more you complication you give the more you're going to have to and complication can be fine but there were several points where i'm like well part of me really thinks it'd be great to do this but if i do that that's another ten thousand words it's difficult to make a decision in a novella that's going to add ten thousand words because now i've gone from shooting for thirty thousand words to shooting for forty thousand words and now we're starting to push novel territory with my worry of you know bloating in the editing um, and I hit that several times. I'm like, well, if I do this, that, because it, it's as good as that sounds, it's going to get complicated. I'm going to have to deal with it. I'm going to have to see that through. That's another 10,000 words. So you have to be careful about adding 
and this is definitely more of a, um, I think, actually it's not really a pantser issue, but plotters do this too. Whereas it's kind of, I think of it's kind of like shiny object syndrome. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this thing? And then you're kind of going, you throw this thing in, you're kind of like, but now I have to, I don't, I don't want to put the time in to resolve that thing that I threw in. How in the hell is that penguin going to go to the bathroom? <laughs> right. And in the novel, you actually have the room to go ahead and expand. In a novella, you don't. Because if you've plotted for 30,000 words, if you've plotted towards the middle, you don't have the room to throw in a lot of complication that you have and, and resolve it. So you have to be careful about picking things up. And because if you, you could put shiny objects in your story that don't go anywhere, but I'll tell you what, it's annoying. And it's actually not, it's not good craft. And your readers will latch onto it and ask you six months later. So, what was the how deal? Did that penguin go with the <laughs> Go to the bathroom. If I had not put it in there, someone would have fucking asked me how the penguin went to the bathroom. God, it must be, or somebody would have to passive aggressive comment saying, "God, it's really awful how their quarters must be covered in penguin shit all the time." <laughs> how many times a night does that kid have to take that penguin swing swimming to go to the bathroom? So, especially with world building, putting complicated, shiny, uh, you know, things that seem really cool. I see this with magical world building, sentinel world building. They, you know, there's a lot of words put to explaining a concept that doesn't actually serve the plot at all. Or sometimes they put a magical device into a situation that is so astronomically shocking that they don't pay attention to the ramifications of doing it. And I don't want to call out anything specific, so I'm not going to um, name a particular device or story. What I'm saying is, is if you do something, um, if you create a situation in your fic um, for a particular moment, and this device only serves this moment, and you don't pay attention to how this device is going to spread out through your story, and the ramifications of having this particular thing be really delicate or this thing be really explosive or um i'm trying to give an example that i've not read so i don't want to pick on anybody um um oh i had a moment call myself i had a moment in harry potter and the soulmate bond where i did something really stupid i made his ritual um how do you say a fame I say, I say athame, but it might be athame. I don't know. Athame. His ritual knife. I made it poisonous to anybody but him. Um, because he's a parcel mouth and he'd been bit by a basilisk. Well, okay, that's really cool. In his in his little in his little story about how he he got a um a a knife holder it was cute in the holster and it was all really cute and fine. Here's the thing. Why the fuck would he have a ritual knife only he could use? I know the word lady holder. I just wasn't sure I could say it because sometimes S words. She, I have a thing, um, because of my thing, um, but uh, it. I was like, why the what the fuck am I gonna do with this? Why did I do? I mean, it was cool, but it it served no. It, it was just dumb. It was a dumb thing to do. So here is he has this damn ritual knife that only he can use. He can't use it in any ritual with any other reason. Why the fuck would he have it? Susan um, offered a... And so did Bast. Help me out here. Ah, the... Ah, the... Ah, the may? 
I know how to say that S word, Erte. I have a tongue tie. And sometimes S words, like SH words, don't come out of my mouth without a stutter. And my tongue tie wasn't actually discovered until I was an adult, until it was too late to fix. Well, I could fix it, but then I would have to learn to retalk again. Literally. I would have to take speech therapy as an adult. So. Um, but that ritual knife thing, Jilly? The ritual knife thing. Did we get... Writing Susan and Bass both offered pronunciations that are pretty close to the same, but... Okay, so Bass is saying that it's Athame. 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 Okay. But there was no point in him having this damn knife that only he could use. So I had to, in another episode where he had to use that knife in a ritual, um, I had to... Uh, have him get another one out of the vault and explain that he had gotten a family heirloom out of the vault to replace so that he wouldn't end up using this knife um, and kill somebody in a fucking, and I forget that it, that it was poisonous. And it was, like that moment in um, what, what might've been when I fed Sebastian the Snickers and someone pointed out to me later that I killed the kid because he's <laughs> allergic to peanuts. I made him allergic to peanuts and, forgot so a reader pointed out to me that snickers have peanuts in them i was like oh wow i just killed the kid sorry my bad i'll fix it yeah and you have to be, and that's a minor thing but when you create a world build that's just like a that that's a minor plot hole that you just deal with by changing it to a mars bar right um right but or milky way whatever but the thing is is that that's a minor inconsistency but sometimes you can put a world building element in that has huge ramifications that you just don't address. And so, you know, like I talked about, and there's several stories that do this. And, you know, I've talked about this and like, I've read, read the Phantom, this, this trend for a while of Dom sub stories where subs could be put forcibly into subspace by a specific touch somewhere. Which is and the, ramif the ramifications mm. of that are horrifying. Was that explored in the story? No. 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 I mean, it is, it's so. We actually talked about this in the podcast that I did with Lady Holder. And I was talking about how horrified I was in when I was watching Next Generation when they revealed that Data had an off button. Right. But on the other hand, Data was very careful about who he revealed to that he had an off button. But then that ultimately was used against him. Yes. Yeah. So people put these things in their world building elements. It takes off. People go, oh, it's so great that we have a bonding gland or you can force people into subspace. Isn't that neat that subspace can be triggered? No, it's actually not. It's not. So you have to be careful when you're doing a piece of world building. For starters, do something with it, right? If you're going to put a piece of world building in that is pretty distinctly unique, do something with it. If you don't do something with it, why is it there? And if you aren't doing something with it, it could be, it's usually when people think through the ramifications of something is when they're actually using it. So sometimes these things would become less problematic if you actually do something with it. But also a big thing that is in a story that isn't used becomes a red herring and it becomes, it feels like a bait and switch kind of situation and readers will get pissed. Like, let's say you introduce a character so not 
it, it, let's say it's just contemporary world, right? There's a character who can create portals. And it just comes up, they can create portals, sort of like how Magnus does in um, in Shadowhunters, okay? So similar thing, but not in the Shadowhunters, right? And so it's just introduced as a concept, okay? He never makes a portal, never makes use of the portals, never goes anywhere by portal. It's just discussed for like two pages that he can make portals. Why? Your reader's going to keep expecting that to that. It's so just, it's so, it's like me saying Tony Denozo can make portals, right? And he routinely travels, right? He, so you throw that out there. And then you don't, and your reader's waiting for that to be a foreshadow of something, and it doesn't happen. And you're going, you get your you get emails. To, right. Then you get to the end, and people are going, and things, I don't, I don't ever support readers harassing authors. On the other hand, I do understand why they got to the end of that and immediately got to went to their keyboard and went, what about the portals? portals. I, get, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Because it's such a red herring. It's like, why was that there? I, and then some, a lot of times I talk to authors who have these things in their stories. They go, because I thought it was cool. Yeah, sure. If he went anywhere by portal <laughs> and it served a purpose. Crazy. So it's just, and the, but the thing is, let's say you had done something with that. Let's say you had Tony and what he was using his portals for was, you know, um, booty calls to Hawaii. Okay. But then it's still, let's say you do nothing with it but that. But it's just a story where you, every weekend, Tony takes a portal, or even every night, and he goes and gets banged by a Navy SEAL. Okay. Does it act? But, I'm on board this train. I'm on board with it too. And if you're writing just a sex story with this bizarre element in it, okay. But let's say that you're not writing a, an erotica piece and it's just Tony solving a crime and randomly portaling to Hawaii to get banged. What is this doing for your story? Not a damn thing. It's just this bizarre distraction. I know that's a ridiculous example, but if you think about the it, booty you all. Portal. <laughs> You all have read stories like that, where there's just some bizarre, cool element that goes nowhere and does nothing. Well, you don't need that, really. Resist the temptation to do that no matter what, but really you need to resist that temptation in a novella because you don't have the words for that kind of, those kinds of shenanigans. Unless <laughs> you can only Ellie. portal when aroused. I'm putting her right in the sin bin. <laughs> So you're saying he can only enter a portal, a portal, when he has an erection. <laughs> Do I just get myself put in the sim bin? <laughs> I could put you in the sim bin, but I can't actually demote you into a lower group. <laughs> I'd be permanently in the sim bin. That is honestly, yes, yeah, some very awkward travel conditions. Don't well, I what agree. if, so does that mean he can't come back right away? Because he has, he gets off and then he has to wait till he can get hard again so he can come home. That's rude. Right? Like it didn't even happen. Like... <laughs> that becomes a crack story and that's really more Queenie and Az's department. Um, right. But anyway, so we use these kind of ridiculous examples. I don't want to call anybody out. On unless crazy it's just like a whore. I mean, in the whore AU, that would actually be very beneficial. Yeah, Easy. portaling from one client to another with a boner. <laughs> I mean, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe the portal causes the boner. That's different, though. That's a different story. That's a different red herring. So, but it's an exaggeration. Queenie, you're the only person on this entire server who has their own emoji. 
Well, I'm, I'm, a, a, I'm, know, a, I'm a, honestly, it's not an honor. It's it's that's not famous. That's infamous. Honestly, I'm a little too literal for that statement, Queenie. <laughs> you keep your natal cleft to yourself. Um, I well, I worked hard to find that little snake too. She has she even has a little crown on. That was some effort. <laughs> Look what I did to Queenie. <laughs> So, anyway, so we use ridiculous examples to try to just kind of draw a parallel. But, you know, sometimes people just never see the ramification issues in a decision that that's made. Um, and some people will only see if it's pointed out to them. And it's, But the point is just start thinking through these things. If you don't put things in your story you don't need there, then you won't run into as many of these issues. And... I often find these issues do come up more with world building that serves no purpose. <laughs> that could be somebody's superpower, but I think that would actually make them a sidekick. If their erections caused portals. Port. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That could actually, see, okay, so let's talk about, we're using this as a joke, right? But let's talk about the actual ramifications of somebody who needs to have a boner to create portals. Because this is a good, a good, it's ridiculous, but it does, there are some consent issues <laughs> implicit in the boner portals. Right. Right? I mean, does he get boners because of the portal or does he get portals because of the boners? I, so let's say the first one's not as problematic as the second one. So let's say, because how does he create the portal if he has to have the portal to get the boner? So that doesn't even work. So let's say he gets a bo boner and then he's able to create the portal, right? So let's say he's hero support. He's off with his hero. And they're they're saving lives and stuff. And they need to portal out because they're all their lives are in jeopardy. They need to save some kids or something, right? And he has to get a heart on so they can all escape. What if he's I not? Mean, is the there mood? like a, um, 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 who has to jerk him off this time? Right. What if he's unconscious? Does someone just? I, I mean, this this is horrifying. Actually, it's somebody, somebody just take his pants down and jerk him off till he gets hard. I mean, think about it. Does he? Is there a portal that's randomly created anytime he has a boner? Do por portals just just pop up in his bedroom if he's got a wet dream? I mean, there are it's the whole example is absurd, but you can think through the ramifications. It, it is um, um, there are some serious consent issues because the idea that you know someone someone mentioned um, giving him Viagra or adrenaline. Um, well, number one, a very young person doesn't need to be given any of those on the regular. That's just, I mean, is he dosing himself, or or the, or is somebody in his team dosing him for their own benefit? Does right. he get any kind of choice in this? So, and so that's that's what that's what I know. I mean, no, um, copper. I'm not um, picking a good example of of things that people would think of to try to manage this particular ridiculous superpower. Um, and the ramifications of it are really good to know. You know, it's just you know. So, thank you. So you guys, yeah, gave we're, we're definitely falling into love potion territory. Yeah. So you guys gave good examples of how people would get the get the portal. 
get him into a condition to be able to create a portal if he was not so inclined, okay? Um, and it does start to edge into real consent problems. So our ridiculous example can still be followed through of the logical ramifications of, of that kind of world building and that kind of superpower. And it's absurd and people are gonna laugh, but it has a potentially ugly consequence. For instance, we're talking about somebody in Sky High. Um, it is, it's, we're talking about a teenager. And so it becomes even uglier, right? That somebody's superpower is based upon a sort of sexual performance. And how do you train that, you know? So, um, and that's what, so people are getting it that it's kind of like some, like there's, there's a horrifying aspect to this, even though it sounds funny. And so, Yes, this is an absurd example, but you see that kind of thing all the time, people's world building, that they don't consider the implications of the, the ability they've given somebody or a piece of world building or... Um, Ripple management is he, is um, is a big problem. Yeah, it I, is. One of, the, I think, one of the more interesting moments in Harry Potter is when Moody told all the kids not to put their wand in their back pocket because they might blow their ass cheek off. Now... Or butt cheek. I'm not sure how he phrased it. Here's the thing. If that is legit, we got problems. Big problems. Number one is the wand a, a magical focus that focuses the magic inside a magical person? Or is it like a gun? And if it's like a gun, why can't anybody use one? If your wand can act independently of you, without your permission, without your intent, is it sentient? Well, you also have the issue. Also, Patty, what did this dude do to his wand to make him blow his ass off? Right. But <laughs> I think, wouldn't want to do anything with half a ass. <laughs> but think about it. So I have to assume in that that is actually just a joke that it isn't real. Because if it were real, that means that, um, like let's say a thousand kids, a thousand, well, what two hundred, two hundred some odd eleven year olds go to school with a bomb. A bomb. I mean, that they have they that they literally have no control over, apparently, and that they do routinely stick behind their ear or in their pocket or in you know tuck it under their armpit. It's a bomb, apparently. Um, that has some pretty significant. I thought that wa the wand chooses the wizard thing was just Ollivander being a little mysterious, mystical, and romantic. Yeah. I don't think it actually has anything. I think it's about compatibility with the wand material. Yeah, I mean, he's just he's just sung a little story to kids, making them feel special on their wand day. He'll use that phrase. <laughs> I always assumed the waving the wand to get a reaction was about the focus and their magic interacting for the first time. Yeah, and so if it and that if they got a good reaction, it's probably like bonding to them, bonding to their core or whatever. But her magical wand theory was rife with problems. And I just have to ignore the idea that a wand can blow up like that. I mean, there, I mean, there might be things that could cause a wand to blow up, like channeling too much magic through it. Like, let's say somebody was too powerful. I, I can't actually get behind this theory. Like, let's say somebody's really way too powerful for the wand they've got, and they try to push too much magic through the focus, it could cause the focus to blow up. But just having your focus lying next to you in bed, you shouldn't have to worry about waking up with one of your tits blown off. 
<laughs> right now there's actually a really good story I'm, I'm i don't know the story i'm, I'm gonna tell you about it anyway and i'm sorry in advance there's a there's a really good concept here about that in particular that during third year when harry conjured his patronus and drove off the dementors and saved himself and Sirius, he blew his wand out but didn't know it and he continued to use it like it was still a magical focus when all it really was was a piece of wood. And he basically had moved beyond using a wand and was using wandless magic and didn't know it. And eventually, I don't know how it, they um, they figure out that his wand is basically just a piece of wood now because he's burned the, he's literally burned the phoenix feather out of it with that spell to drive off all those dementors. Um. But he ends up getting like a staff, I think, made because he can no longer use a regular wand. Which is sort of actually sort of my headcanon for adult Harry is that he has to have a uh, he has to have a, a very robust, robust magical focus. Yeah. You could do that with a dual wand core or a staff or a stave um, or that maybe most of his magic is wandless magic. And that he uses wands for really delicate charm work or something like that, you know, that requires a more refined magical touch. And that maybe he has one that's special, customized. I love custom ones. Yeah, custom ones are fun. <laughs> it's my favorite trope. <laughs> now, I have, um, it's a subtle world building concept, but in, in Slytherin Black, uh, which is a terrible story to talk about, really, in reference to a novella, because that's an epic. But anyway, um, I have, uh, the way I broke it down was that, because I have several mages, right? And I have one mage who uses um, a different focus focus system. They have They have rings that they bond to their core, and each ring has its own focus. So at each stage of their mastery, they get a different ring. So if you're an Archmagus, there's 10 stages of mastery, and so she wears all 10 rings. And that's all of her magic is focused through those 10 separate focus. Foci? I don't know. Whatever. But I would say foci. I think um, foci is less awkward than focuses. Focuses is. <laughs> uh, but elementals, <laughs> their magic is inherent to them. And so Zaid is a... Is a He's a, an elemental mage. So he does, for things that are not elemental, he uses a staff or a wand or whatever's appropriate. But when he's channeling elemental magic, that is has nothing to do with the focus. So when he is using fiend fire to destroy the horcruxes, he does that with his hands. And um, I don't know if that's foci or foci. Foci? Foci. It's foci. Okay. Um, I should know that because I had to tell somebody earlier today how to pronounce lactobacillus. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, but I worked on the magical theory for that. Like I thought, well, elemental is a little bit different because that's something that is not at all about, it's, it's a different branch of magic. And so I'm not going to use a focus for it. The focus is um, his hands. He focuses through his hands for that. So uh, and then I wanted to have Maggie have a different type of focus because she's trained in a different discipline. She's not trained the way UK wizards are trained. Uh, she's trained um, the way the indigenous peoples of Canada, North America, and Mexico are trained, which they have a different training system because magic works has, you know, they've ex existed as a magical community long before 
what was happening in Britain. And so it developed separately. So I worked on the different types of magical theory, but I tried to make sure it all worked and made sense. And like Maggie's focus, fo foci are not going to blow up and take her hands off. She's got 10 of them. She basically, they use rings instead of wands. So she's basically got 10 wands. Her, I mean, her digits going to blow up? That doesn't make any sense. That's crazy cakes. I always took Moody's advice is kind of like that thing about you'll go blind. Um, yeah, it seems like prank advice. Like if you masturbate, you'll go blind. Don't put your one in your wallet, your um, pocket. You'll, um, you'll, you'll, you'll blow your butt cheek off. It's just like really ridiculous advice that adults give kids. The ramifications of it are crazy. Right. Because, I mean, it sounds like the, to me, I took it as the advice of a, an horror. <laughs> I can't, I never can say it. It always feels so wrong in my mouth. Um, it's the advice. Of I've been saying R or. It's my, it, R or. It's my, it's the advice from a former R. That, that's worse. Or I'll do with or. It's the advice of former or who believes that wands should be held in holsters. So he says ridiculous things like, it'll blow your butt cheek off. We're not getting it. We're not doing this again. Kira's going to pronounce it R, <laughs> R, R, or, which I can't do. I just, it's, no. Magical cop. Magical cop. For yeah. sake. Magical cop. And the whizzy court, because I'm not getting into that again either. Um, Wizzy emote, right? Yes. I practiced that one. Wizigamote. Zenigamote. You're missing a syllable. But anyway. So, in a novella, be careful about how much world building you've got. Make sure your world building serves a purpose. Now, I was reading something that said that in the three-act structure for a novella, that you have room for two plot points. And again, we're talking about plot points. Plot points being the major turning points. I think that seems a little limited to me. Um, me too. I, I I feel restricted already. I feel like I've been, you know, handcuffed to something that I don't even like. Right? If you're going to handcuff me to something, I better like it or you better not ever handcuff me. Unhandcuff me. It's going to be... I'm going to throw down. I'm just saying. Basically, they're <laughs> saying that the... They're all... all it's all ridiculously um about so basically you're saying that, that they're saying that you get the beginning and the middle and those are your two plot points no you get a plot point before the middle and a plot point before the climax so basically before the end so one right before act two and one right before act three is where they're saying the plot points go but i just think that's silly how do they define a plot point they define a plot point as, uh, I have to scroll way back up. Um, every story needs to be getting middle and end. We've known that for about 2,000 years, but it doesn't <laughs> stop there. In, uh, a plot point is an incident that directly impacts what happens next in the story. Duh. In other words, it gives a point to the plot, forcing the story to go in a different direction where otherwise it would have just meandered. Any event in a story can be significant, but if it does not move the story forward, it is just a point in the plot, not a plot point. The latter must, one, move the story in a different direction, two, impact character development, three, close the door behind the character, forcing them forward. Think of it like a bolt. I don't like closing the door. I don't like that either. Think of it like a bolt holding your story together. Without it, you just have separate pieces of scrap metal that connect them together and they form a whole, each piece forming a different event before and after it. 
plot points are big and exciting moments. And if you think back on a book you read a while ago, they likely had the, they're likely the moments you remember because of this, it's easy. Because of this, it's easy to think of every event in a book as a plot point, but that's not always true. The plot is a chain of connected events that comprises the narrative. If one of those events does not have a concrete effect on the protagonist and by extension the trajectory of the plot, it is not a plot point. An advisor might berate a prince for mourning the death of his father, but this isn't a plot point because it isn't necessarily pivotal. It doesn't convince Hamlet to keep a stiff, up, stiff upper lip for the rest of his life, after all. But when the prince sees his father's ghost with his own eyes, and the ghost bids him to avenge its death, the prince has no choice but to act. There you can see a plot point in motion determining the story's course moving forward. So... But the idea that you only have two in a novella is absurd to me because that feels like very. What I would say about that is that she, the the author is ignoring um, characterization points and world building points that all form big plot points that move your story forward. I don't like the principle of that. I mean, Reezy's, but, this is it's from Reezy, and it is a pretty good, um, typically a pretty good site for story advice. However, mm -hmm. um, it's a little, when you try to fit yourself into somebody else's very specific structure as they define what good writing is, you it can wind up being very stifling. So... You have to figure out what works for you. The idea of two plot points in a three-act structure is kind of ridiculous to me because there are going to be more pivotal points than two. Because as some pivotal points might move your plot forward, but another pivotal point could... <clears throat> okay, Daisy. Could further your characterization and your internal conflict rather than your external conflict. And it seems like this system is only um, looking at external conflict, which is fine if that's what you want to do. It's just not something that, I mean, I'm a character, I'm a character driven writer, not a plot driven writer. And often I have plot points in my document that are strictly about characterization and moving forward. Yeah, because I mean, oh, I mean, Ellie. the first, so it, to, in the story that I put together, the first, the to me, the first plot point, the first pivotal moment, the first thing that has to happen for the rest of the story to happen is Tony has to get read in on the program, which means the things, what are the things, and so for me to determine which of the plot elements have to happen before that point and which plot elements come after that point. Well, in order for him to, to, for that to occur, the trust has to have made their moves. Right. And a lot, mo a lot of that happens off screen. Mm -hmm. Right. So the way I have it written right now, structured in the plot is that the trust does try to get him and he is fighting them off and pretty successfully when the SGC is, has moved in to try to, get him some support and so marines show up and help get the trust operatives arrested so that moment actually isn't the plot point the plot point is when tom morrow comes in and tells me about the sgc that would be it that's the pivotal moment so by this definition that is the moment where effectively the door closes behind tony but i don't actually ever i wouldn't do that because i don't like to get right the idea that my characters don't have choices um <clears throat> 
no, no, no. We didn't make a corner because we want we want to put people in the corner. We made a corner because people deserve to get put in the corner. The egg came second. <laughs> there's there's no there's no there was, no there's no chicken and egg scenario here. We know which one came first. There was no almost. Okay, so plot points or plot. So beyond plot. So moving beyond plot points, and honestly. With a lot of things in writing, there's kind of a wibbly definition for a lot of things. It's like, you know, some people talk about you need to write in a five arc structure. Some say you need to write in a seven. Some say you need three. There's three three part narrative structure. Whatever. You're going to find what works for you, what helps you move along. So let's get into actually plotting because y'all are supposed to be doing some plotting. Pantsers, just hold on to your pants and deal for a second. Kira, plotting, actual plotting. Plotting. Are you, is, is, is this heifer going to make me plot on the air? Wow. Okay. This was my idea, wasn't it? I, I regret my life choices. Okay. Plotting. Thing. Fandom. That I may or may not use. It's just, you know, since, since we're doing an example. Um... So, if you're thinking about the first pivotal pivotal moment when you're well, since plotting, I don't have an idea or a theme, I need to do my theme first and my idea because okay. I haven't. Because um, I did for for that homework, I actually did original fiction work, but I don't want to plot that on the air. Edie, Edie Elizabeth, <laughs> we I'm told all... you you can't use Starship. <laughs> All down with Elizabeth. We're giving you guys middle names so that we can, you know, chastise you appropriately. <laughs> like a proper Southern woman. Okay. Um, girl, get your gif out of my chat room. You know, you know that distracts the fuck out of me. <laughs> it's not stash ship. It's marine ship. We're not having any of it. So my theme is moving on, moving on, new relationship, maybe romance. Would that be a May, um, May, December? Um, how much age difference are you putting in there? Maybe. I mean, maybe. I think there's about 20 years difference between them. I mean. Yeah, May, December. Although Tony's birthday's in June, so, you know. <laughs> I'm just being too literal there for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, idea. So, Tony Dinozo meets Randolph Rampart. He's tapped to run a multi-agency intelligence operation. So, like a task force kind of thing. Across several organizations like for some kind of thing we'll, we'll, we'll figure out what he's going to be looking at later but that's just my general idea okay so i don't really need to do I, i'll i will skip profiling because i i have profiles for these guys already um although if i was going to write this i would sit down and i would tailor them to fit my needs for the story and see what is in them that i might need to tweak a little bit when it came um when it comes to their gmc um 
especially since my main profile for Randolph Rampart has him married. So I would want to take out the marriage as much as I love her. Um, Angela's my girl. I would have to remove the marriage. Um, because it's also my headcanon. If he's married to Angela, he's not divorcing Angela. <laughs> she might end up being his widow. <laughs> There's no divorcing Angela. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. So what are my plot points? So, for, I felt, you know, actually, I think that I would want Tony to um, get into, um, I tell you to start with a turning point, a pivotal moment, a bang, start with a bang, um, start in the middle, start in the middle of the action. So, it'd be really interesting to start a story where Tony has been called into a meeting in Vance's office, and he thinks that he's been... Um, that he's going to get called on the carpet for some whatever reason, because that's what Vance does, because Vance is an asshole. Um, or he thinks maybe he's going to get sent to another ship. He's not about that. He comes in, he's probably a little pissed off. I'm not going to get on another damn ship. I will quit first. Um, so he has this attitude coming into this meeting. And in this meeting is um, uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, um, Tom Morrow, the director of the FBI, maybe the director of the CIA. Um, the director of Homeland, or if I wanted to do a crossover, the director of Homeworld. If I was actually writing, if, if I would want to do like Jack, it would definitely be the director of Homeworld sitting in the chair. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you would have Tom Murrow there for Homeland and then Jack O'Neill there for Homeworld. Um, and it would be probably, if in that circumstance, it would probably be an organization designed to, to root out, um, the trust from the um, the United States government. And so they're putting it in NCIS because it's the little brother agency and it's kind of off everybody's radar. And Tom Morrow wants Tony Dinozo to run it. Much to Vance's shock and horror. So, but probably I would just do like, um, since I want to do the Rampart and Dinozo thing, I wouldn't have Stargate in it. Though if that would be a really good... Um, thing to explore to have because a lot of times the dealing with the trust falls to the SGC and the and the NID has been compromised. Um so it the government come in and say, okay, you know what, we're gonna handle this. You guys go off and do your thing. Um we're gonna pull the in we're gonna pull the NID apart. We're gonna do this, this and we're gonna have this guy over here in NCIS who no one really knows about do it. And you just go do your thing and and don't worry about it. Um, we got we got this covered. And then he just takes care of the trust. And they're like, "Who the fuck was that guy? <laughs> Why didn't we recruit that guy?" <laughs> I imagine he would try to get McGee into it, but I don't think McGee is a good choice for that kind of task force work, personally. Um, even if he's not in a point in the um, canon where he's a big problem for Tony, um, he is also someone who doesn't take direction well. Especially from Tony. Either he rebels against it because he doesn't think the person who's trying to direct him is qualified to do it, or he reacts with fear because he's afraid of the person who's doing it. He's not team material. No. 
Even when he's not being a little dick. Um, I mean, you know, you can back it up. But see, but see, the longer I back it up, the less likely it would be that Randolph Rampart would actually be the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Because you don't get that as a two-star. Do you? I don't I think mean, so. Commandant's usually no. three or four. Um, so, and I don't mind writing him in a younger place. So I could write this like shortly after Morrow leaves. Because I think that the um because I can make whatever conflict I want. And then, you know, it would be Shepard there. And and if I did this, it would take Tony out of her radar, so to speak. And I could just avoid that whole Jean Benoit thing. Because he wouldn't be. Yeah, I think so too. I think he's a four star. So I could and Rampart is not the Commandant of the Marine Corps, but then why would he be in that meeting? Honestly, why would he be in that meeting to begin with? Um, why would he be? Well, you have to come up with a reason for him to be in that meeting. Now, if this were like a Sentinel Guide universe, you could actually make him a younger four-star, because we talked about this once, about how yeah. in a Sentinel Guide universe, you could have a promotion path for Sentinels that's a little bit faster or something. You could do things in an AU that it's a little bit harder to do. Um in in something in more of a contemporary situation i was just googling up who the youngest um the youngest one star was like 31 or 32 i think that happened during world war ii shortest time and rank that i can find for a four star ever time and rank is 31 years so if he entered the marine corps at 17 with parental permission which you know depending on the time period um i think 16 used to be the cutoff if you had parents permissions but randolph would be too young for that um but he could have entered at 17 and gone and then by the time he was actually serving him he, he'd have been 18 but so you can sign up for the military at 17 if your parents approve yeah, he'd still be pushing 50 regards. And I agree, Shadow says they could have, uh, if they're using Force Recon Marines for some sort of intelligence, ask, because that's what Force Recon does, is intelligence. So he might be, he might have a seat at the table on the task force because of Marine assets being used. So, um, you said Sentinel, and, and, and now my brain's percolating on it. Right? I'm, I'm really, my strong, I don't have, I have like very little idea what I'm doing for July, but my strongest contender is Tony and Randolph. I don't want to do that because I don't want to step all over. I don't want to drift into your brain and <laughs> step all over your idea. <laughs> um, well, you can't plot it now. Which, we, which is entirely possible. I mean, we've done it where we stepped on somebody's idea we weren't even talking to. <laughs> Because yeah. fandom is what it is. Yeah, well, we also, there's one plot drift we did where by the time we got to the end of it, it was completely unclear whose story we had just plotted. <laughs> like, did we plot your story or my story? I don't even know. Well, who wants to write it more? <laughs> I think it became yours. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, we, we, did, we did go because once we saw Endgame, we then had to go back and fix, yeah. fix some plot issues. <sighs> in game let's in not game. go there again um 
But then, you know, it also, this is a novella, so I don't have a lot of room for politics or terrorism or whatever this would be. Um, so my whole idea is actually, my idea is too big for a novella. Well, it depends upon. You can run a multi-agency operation in 25K plus have a new um, romantic relationship. But I would say it depends upon what is the main focus of the plot. If the main focus of the plot is getting him together with Randolph and the stuff that's going on, getting the task force set up, is more of a subplot. So you're using this as a device to get them to meet. And then that takes center stage while everything else is sort of the background. It's it's the window dressing for everything that happens. You could, but if your focus is the task force and the subplot is the romance, no, I don't think you can do it in 30K. No, no. But it depends. So it depends on what kind of story you're going to tell. So Tony meets. Um, I don't know. Someone said it would be more likely that they would have a two-star in this meeting. I think if the director of Homeland Security is sitting down at this table and the director of the FBI and we're using force recon, that there would be questions as why the hell isn't there come down the Marine Corps here? Why did he, um, why did he send this deputy thing? But well, he um, could, he why did he send his XO? He could also be there representing the Joint Chiefs rather than representing the Marine Corps. Yes, true. True. So if they send, if they send, you know, because they're not going to send all of them, they could just send, you know, more, there are more Marine assets in this, in this project, but it could be others. There are also Air Force assets if it's the SGC, so they could be sending him in to represent the, the Joint Chiefs. I kind of do want to do the SGC thing, but again, is novel, that, is, is that too big? It is huge, because <laughs> once you bring the I mean, SGC. I could, once the novella episodes like I did was what what might have been. Yes, you could. Cause, but the thing is, so so illustrated for I normally would not argue with Kira about her plot, but because we're illustrating plotting, um, mm -hmm. the SGC. If you don't, if you bring the SGC to the table and you don't do anything with it, that's one of those red herrings that could be really irritating, right? Well, if, if this group is being designed to route the trust, that's the SGC angle. But I don't see. I mean, depending on when I set this, it could be George Hammond in this meeting instead of Jack O'Neill. Yeah, it could be. In fact, I probably would make it Hammond because then that way there aren't two hot silver fox <laughs> dividing Tony's attention. Like, which one am I going to take a ride on? <laughs> Can I have both? Um, I'm, I'm going to disagree. The answer is no. I'm going to disagree about the idea that um, somebody mentioned that, the, that they don't believe all those people would be meeting with the task force commander. Um, sometimes when it comes somebody, to the trust. It, well, it all depends upon the context, right? I mean, sometimes, um, sometimes somebody lower on the totem pole does wind up in a room with a lot of really improbable people. It just because sometimes they need the answer from somebody who has the answer. But if this task force has is a product of a joint chief of staff meeting, um, and Rampart goes to Tom Morrow, who's running Homeland, and Morrow taps Hammond, who's running Homeworld, and says, "Hey, um, the president wants the trust dealt with. 
having this conversation and Tom Morrow says, you know, I've got, I've got an out of the box thinker in, in my pocket. I think we need to pull um, Leon Vance into this or Shepard, who, whoever I chose for the, whoever I put the spot. And I'm liking the idea of it being Vance. Um, Cause I don't really like writing Shepard. Um, Cause her, her character work on the show was so annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so let's get Leon Vance at the table because I think that we need that. He's got somebody on his staff who can, who can think outside of the box and do this for us. And um, if we, if we put it in CIS, no one's going to notice this operation until it's too late. Cause NCIS isn't on their radar. It's not attached to the SGC. It's um, not an agency that has a lot of power. Um, they don't have a very big jurisdiction, um, but we can empower a task force, bring in assets that we all can trust and this, this, and this. And then Tony Dinozo with these four men, um, which would be Tom Morrow, Randolph Rampart, George Hammond, and Leon Vance, which I don't think is unrealistic at all. No, I agree. Yes, in, in, in CIS, um, NCIS is a civilian agency, so it um, would also probably pacify the IOA, who tries to uh, push the the on the civilian leadership role a lot. And I think this is also a situation where Tony would rise to the um, to the challenge very easily. But when it comes to something like a trust, um, like the trust who's infiltrated multiple government agencies, including the SGC. Um, this isn't something they're going to trickle down to their XOs or their administrative assistants or deputy directors to deal with. This is the trust. This is not national security. This is planetary. It's almost, you could almost say universal security, right? Because at certain points during the SGC timeline, the NID threatened the safety of, I mean, not NID, but the trust threatened the safety of our planet. Mm-hmm. They attacked the Jaffa and killed thousands of them with a biological weapon. They stole from the Asgard. They stole shit from the Asgard. <laughs> so the trust actually is a big fucking threat. And oftentimes, and this is something that I think that, that kind of fell down in Stargate, is that they turned them into this actual, this beast that's in the shadows working and, and, and puts them in positions where they actually courted war with other groups of people that we were trying to work with that could have come here and destroyed our whole planet and yet never treated them as seriously as, as they should have like a threat. Apparently I have a soapbox about the trust and I didn't even know it. <laughs> so and if there's Kind of a come of a, of a red herring because they, you know, they only brought it out every once in a while. It's like it was like they were occasionally a threat. Yeah, the whole trust thing was actually handled really badly. I mean, they could have been the trust could have been a really good big villain, and yet they just pivoted, and all of a sudden they had the aura. It was like it's like they needed the threat to be alien, and so when really it was always the problem was always shit going on at home but you could but that it's co- kind of like the scooby-doo principle really in the end they always wanted it to be a monster but it always turned out to be a human mostly it turned out to be a white dude an old white dude <laughs> which you know fair <laughs> yeah 
But for the model of the meeting, when you have a situation where you've got um, really critical, secure, really sensitive information, they're very careful about bringing in people who don't need to directly be there. So um, if you think about, if anybody's seen Jack Ryan, the first season of the second season's crap so far, but um, of what I've seen of it, but the first season was great. There's a meeting where Jack is pulled in because he's the subject matter expert on this terrorist. And he's basically there with, there's eight, there's the head of the CIA and then there's other agency heads there and the heads of various departments at the CIA. He's, he's in that room boxing way above his weight class. And yet he was there anyway. As well, it's, and it's very reminiscent of the scene in the hunt for red october when they're all having that really important meeting and he's staring at the map and then all of a sudden he says son of a bitch or something like that and then he he's figured out what's happening right. and they don't want to believe him but they also don't want to disbelieve him so they put him on a plane and then he spends the rest of the damn movie telling himself he should have wrote a damn memo and honestly he should have yeah next time back <laughs> write a memo um because he He's with the, he's with, wasn't he in the room with the president when he did that? Or was it just the, I think so. or was it the national security advisor? I don't know. But what I remember is after it was over with, I mean, there were a lot of important people in this room and to the point that when he got finished and they were leaving, James Earl Jones character turns to him and says, Jesus, Jack. <laughs> right. So he's the one dude in the room that does not fit. And it, it, they're not going to bring in a bunch of people. Um, if they're wanting to keep the information to a select group of people, they're going to be careful to make sure that people, only people in the room are those who need to know. And the person leading the task force would need to know. So I think my very first plot um, event, we'll go with that term because I'm on the fence about that whole article with the point, with the, um, with the event versus the point. So I think I didn't, I do tend to go towards more event plotting. And I give my events weight based more on characterization than I do anything else. But the the point is, is that you need to find your own method, create your own method of plotting and preparing to work, um, because that's what will serve you best in the end. Nobody's plot system worked for me. I don't right? expect my plot system to work for anybody as I currently do it, but it's fine of other people's processes that you can bring into your own to make your own process. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh my God. I, why am I getting that song in my head? Mambo <laughs> number five. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, now I want to like stab myself with an ice pick. <laughs> right in the brain. <laughs> Because I mean, it's it's really important to shape your own process as a writer because that's where you find your comfort, and <laughs> um, because like we said last night is that I I realized thankfully years ago that I am not I I, I don't need to plot down to the scene, and when blocking off scenes is the best way for me not to ever write a project, right? Because I need a little room to move. That's some crazy ass shit. But I know writers who do that. Oh they yeah. They plot by chapter and scene. They know every scene that's going to be in the chapter. They know. And because I'm more interested in these are the things I have to. There is a pantsing element to how I approach a chapter. 
which is that I let to sit down and decide, okay, this is where I'm at. This is the event that has to happen. These are the other things I can fit in that would fit well with this that are on my to-do list. Because like I remember I mentioned earlier about there are events that are a little bit movable in the story. Like you need to, like you note to yourself, I need to wrap up this plot line or I need to make a note about this thing being done or, you know. And so I make, I sit down at the chapter and I look at my list of things still to do. And I go, okay, I need to do, I can handle those and this, it fits well with this. And then I figure out how many scenes that's going to be. Okay, I'm going to need to write these three scenes. I figure out the order they're going to go in and then I start to write. It is, that's the, that's the most structure I put to my planning. I don't sit down and scene map it and go, this is going to happen this and they're going to talk about this and no, I can't do it that way. It just doesn't work. It's too, I feel constricted when I am given too much. Well, what happens for me is because I do have OCD, if plot by the scene, I lock myself in Yeah, to that, even when it doesn't work for me. It can feel like you're failing to execute on your plot, which can get really uncomfortable. So I give, I give myself lots of room to wiggle, which is why I look at the critical path. These are the things that have to happen. These are the big moments that are really important. Um, this is the stuff that has to happen between there and this and there. And then I just don't fence myself in beyond that. Because if I do, I'll get very unhappy. Although sometimes I got a a friend who outlines by chapter and then she'll like, you know, do a Roman numeral one and that's chapter one. And then she'll have A, B, C, D and like A, B and C and D and those A, B, C, Ds. Those are her four scenes in each chapter. This bitch can estimate her word count down to the 100 words. She, I mean, that's crazy. I just, (laughs) I mean, I, no, craft. and I even appreciate her organization. But and she's got, she's got, you know, she's banging. But I no, I can't do that. It's a lot. That's a lot. I need, I need to feel, I need to feel like I've got freedom to move with what I'm actually how I'm actually how I'm executing. I have a plan for the execution, but I need to feel like the method. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of like getting dressed for work. You know, I wouldn't do well with uniforms at all. But no. you know, I. You need to be dressed before you leave the house. That's plenty of structure on that. I'm like, okay, cool. Clothes before I leave. <laughs> Shoes and socks. Great. Got it. Socks? Go to the corner. <laughs> I want to hold Shoes your... require socks. I know you don't like to hear this, but you can't wear boots without socks. I know. That's why I finally had to wear socks, you know, for the first time in like 13 months the other day. This is I had to put on boots. It's terrible. I know. Like, I get it. I'm, I'm Southern. I try to avoid socks as much as possible unless my feet get cold and then I have to put socks on. And sometimes I have to sleep in them because my feet is cold and I'm an old lady and I get arthritis in my feet. Dude, I live in a part of the country where people run around with Birkenstocks and socks. I used to, but now my, if, if, if my feet get cold, my toes cramp up and it is terrible. I mean, is there anything worse than getting a, a cramp in your foot? Yes. yes, getting actually. a cramp that goes from your hip to your foot. Having your arch curl in on your foot. Like, I had one so bad, I thought I was going to break my foot. Now, my muscle cramped so bad, I thought I was going to break my foot. And um, I was like, is, is this possible? Can you break your foot with a charlie horse? <laughs> I'm thinking some of those bones are actually quite delicate in your foot. <laughs> 
I took a, I had a ah. medication issue at one point that was causing me to have um, muscle spasms in my scalenes, um, which to me was the worst muscle spasms I've ever had. It was awful. Well, okay. Someone asked in the chat room, what's the difference between plotting by scene and by event? Um, plotting by scene usually means um, that you dig into the scene and block out who's going to um, what's going to happen in the scene, uh, how many words you're going to use in the scene. What I would also say is that I have had events in my plot that were seven or eight scenes long. Yeah. And I've had and events. Like, I've had a, yeah, yeah. I've got one pending plot event on my small magic um, document for my zero draft for small magic. And it is not even a whole sentence. It is literally the battle of the five armies. That's my final plot point in small magic. Yeah. That's not one scene. 23K letter, yeah. I mean, it's just like, why did I do that to myself? Why? Yeah, in Slytherin Black, I had one one of my plot points was the court, one of the court cases, one of the court, one of the hearing, not a court case, the hearing. It was a hearing. It wasn't a trial. It was a hearing. Um, it was two chapters. That's about 12,000 words. And that probably had about four scenes. So... I could have, I mean, yes, in way you could kind of look at it as one scene, although it really wasn't because there was the, you know, Sirius trying to soothe Harry. They're not going to take you away from me scene, then being separated, then the trial starts. Then there was a break where they discussed some stuff between, um, then they went back in to finish the hearing. And then there was a little bit after the hearing where Zayden Sirius talked. So that was, um, that was, to me, that was one, one plot, one plot point is the hearing and actually based on the definition of plot point it was also a plot point because that hearing was a big turning point because Dumbledore lost any control over Harry in that hearing so always a very satisfying moment in Harry Potter fic right so you have here you have the hearing and that's all I wrote down was hearing if I had mapped that by scene I would have had to have write you know they arrive at the ministry the scene getting ready for the hearing then the next scene would be um, the first the first part of the hearing, and then the next scene would be that what happened in the break, and then the next scene would be the hearing continues, and then the last scene would be after they meet in a little side room, and talk about something that came up. So, in this kind of structure, I just it it triggers in me an OCD thing that I don't want to go down that road because it it's really um psychologically uncomfortable right so if you plotted that by scene what i just described i just put hearing happens right so i <laughs> i decided i decided on the fly where i was going to start um and i would decided you know on the fly that how much time was going to be focused on Harry and Sirius talking to each other. And then I decided, you know, I knew the court case was how it was going to play out, but then some stuff came up and I was like, well, they could just talk about it here, but I think I want to have them actually get like a little room and talk about it there. I made those decisions on the fly based upon how I felt about what I was had written and how the scenes kind of fell out. And I think I would have felt very, if I'd made a decision in advance about how that played out, I certainly would have changed it if I needed to, but I'm just very comfortable making those decisions based upon what I wrote rather than in, in anticipation of what I'm going to write. But 
you should do what's comfortable for you. So if you're very comfortable planning all the scenes, exactly how they're going to play out. Um, you do you, boo. Yeah. I mean, when I sit down to write a chapter, I usually have an idea. Okay, I'm going to this chapter now. And I think I'm going to write these three scenes. But sometimes those three scenes turn into four or five. And sometimes the scene is just way more words than I thought it was going to be. And I wind up having to do a part two because it got so long. Right. Which so with like, my zero draft, I do the numbers. And um, if I, mean, I don't want to show it because my current zero draft is actually my quantum bang um, that I'm working on. But what I'll do is when I'm working on the, the plot points um, is that I will write down the margin of my printed out document where in what chapter I put this plot point. So if I have to come back to it or if I've moved this plot point around in my zero draft in the actual writing, but not in the document itself, like it'll have like four plot points on this page and then it'll be like chapter 20, chapter 20, chapter 15, 20. <laughs> and then if I need to go back to this plot point to see what I did with it, I go back to chapter 15, look it up and see what I did to make sure that I filled out all the details on that point. And if I need to address it, so on my zero draft, you will find that in like in other places that I will go, that I will have a little note in the margins that go back to chapter two, read this before writing the scene to make sure you address this, this particular plot point fully by the end of the draft. Yeah. You know, now I just looked at what Ellie just shared an image of how she plots and she, she, she seen plots. Um, Girl. I'm actually I, little pages I, and shit. I'm 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 impressed. I'm impressed. Look how organized you are. Um, yeah, that's I adorable. I recognize trust issues. Yeah. If if that's what serves you, then then you keep doing it because good job. But I notice in your purpose, she's the section she has for purpose of scene the notes about the scene. Um. There's stuff in here that feeds into GMC emotion. There's the emotional, a little bit, a little bit stuff. Not, it's more action focused from what I'm reading so far. But it definitely feeds into. You can see the GMC being fed in here. Yeah, I mean, Ellie's very close to my method, except she's breaking it down into scene structure. Right, right. If this was more of a like linear thing i would call this pretty close to zero drafting but it's important to do what gets you through your through your process right um, if you you'll try different things i know some people who try i would, it. I would say diehard plotters who who could write 100k on one sheet of outline or two sheets of outline i need a little more if than they that. only put their little plot points and don't put any gmc in it Right. And it, some people, it just depends upon where your comfort is, right? So if your comfort is with people, you let's say, especially if I think a lot of times for character-driven writers, it's a little easier for them to hold the characterization in their head, and then they write out the plot. And other people are really rock solid on the plot, and they write more about the characterization. It just, everybody's different. And so anybody trying to pigeonhole you into one thing is usually a bad idea. There are very few absolutes, right? And some of the absolutes is you need an idea. It's not a story if you don't have an idea. Um, it's something else. It might be a blog post. I don't know. But it's not a story without an idea. And honestly, it's not a finished story without a theme. So, but there's, so there's a few absolutes. But beyond that, you find a process that works for you. How do you know it works for you? You got the story finished. <laughs> 
a lot of an in, a lot of the indication that a process isn't working is that you have nothing but works in progress. I'm not saying a lot of works in progress is an indication of an issue. I'm saying only works in progress is an indication of an issue. Does that make sense? Because I have a lot of works in progress because sometimes I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to spend more time on that idea. So I'm going to go to something I do want to spend time on. But I also have a lot of finished works. I have a lot of finished works. I have a lot of works in progress. And most of them have some form of zero draft attached to them. Sometimes it's a mini plot document like the one I've shared with you guys from earlier. And sometimes it's, you know, 80 or 90 point document. <laughs> it just really depends on, I mean, small, small matter. So, I'll, I'm, I'll share. Let's see if this fits. I'll share what I because I because I, I hand wrote my um, plot summary, my my plot plot points, whatever you want to call them. Um, my my critical path. I hand wrote it um, while I was out at the hospital today. So I uh, typed up as much as I had time to type right before the podcast. I'll share the first. I think I've got fourteen points in here. And you can see kind of how this is kind of the process that works for me. And not all of this would appear on screen. So it's for me, like I said, some of this stuff doesn't happen. You wouldn't see it, but I need to know it because it has to, it has to occur and be mentioned at some point because it triggers the next thing that happens. So this is the structure that works for me. And the stuff, the notes about, especially internal GMC, are all in my character bios and stuff. Um, and I don't, I don't typically meld the two. Kira melds the two more than I do. I'm gonna, sh I'm gonna show you the first couple of pop. Um, the, I'm, I'm doing some formatting. C give me a minute. I'm trying to be concise here, which is, you know, um, I'm gonna show you some screenshots from Unleash Your Demons, which is complete, and so it's not really a big deal. I would say on the surface, like what Kira does and what I do look similar, but if you read them, mine is very event-driven and shows more GMC built into hers. Because I tend to just keep the GMC in the character bios and I don't incorporate it into my event plotting. But also sometimes I do this right here and I wanted to, I came down this far so that I could show you something that I do that's a little different. Um, I don't often, I don't always do this, but sometimes... If I have something intricate going on in a plot point, I will break it down into this. So you will see that in this last one um, that I show you, number seven, um, I actually, because that's when he lands back in the past, I needed to break that down a little bit more and open up that moment so that um, it had more impact. And that's actually the part where I stumbled. I stumbled, sent the thing to Jilly and said, look at this shit, my pacing's terrible. And she says, it's not your pacing. <laughs> <laughs> You're underreacting. He's underreacting to his circumstances. Yeah. Well, I think what I learned along the way is that if I break it down too much, um, I write myself out of the story. I mean, I literally plot myself out of the desire to write the story. And there is that point for everyone. Everyone has that point in their process where if they take it one step further, they've already told this story to themselves so many times in their head, they no longer have any desire whatsoever to write it. And I think everybody reaches that point. But that point is different for every single writer. So if you've not done a lot of plotting, 
I would certainly recommend that you start with a macro level plot, something higher level, high plot points, rather like than the mini plot. Yeah, I think the mini plot is a good place to start for a lot of people, rather than a very detailed breakdown. Because I could break down. So the the first thing of the stuff I shared, the first event, um, that occurs on screen is number four. Which is the trust operatives try to take Tony. Tony's able to fight them off for a while. Marines sent by the SGC arrive in time to help defend. Um, that is the first thing that happens on screen. So I would open the story with Tony getting attacked and kicking some serious butt. And then a bunch of Marines show up and he's like, what the fuck is going on? The exact progression of how that scene would progress. I wouldn't break that down any further than I did it here. So I would open on point four. Points one, two, and three would be disclosed to him later and then um and then so i've got morrow arrives to read tony in and give him the orders for him to go to the sgc that's actually a very big complicated thing in my head because tony needs to learn about the sgc he's gonna have a lot of questions um he's gonna kind of be told he doesn't have a choice this is this is he can either go work for the sgc or he can be in protective custody he doesn't have the option of just hanging out as a regular civilian anymore so for me, breaking it down further than that starts to feel like writing. And that's why I don't go further than big plot points. Um, but you need to do what works for you. If breaking it down really micro so that you understand exactly what's going on in the scene and you understand all the activities and all the people and that helps you. I've seen people who literally do that. They've got like what Ellie had, but also in addition, they have who all's in the scene every character that appears in the scene. So they understand, you know, where everybody is and you should do absolutely what works for you. Now, sometimes in addition to um, my zero draft and my character profiles, I also do some background world building. Like when I wrote synthetic, I had um, essays and a couple other things just to kind of hammer out my world building for myself. And I shared them when I was getting ready to write um, synthetic. So that you just as an exercise. Um, but uh, most of that stuff, you know, is, is never for the reader. It's for me. Um, it's just so that I have a really good grasp of my world, especially with that one. Cause it was a brand new thing. I need to know the history. Um, I needed to feel comfortable with the characters' backgrounds and what was going on, and that really should have been my my moment when I realized when I when I realized I was doing that comfortable with the characters, and I should have been because they're fucking phantom characters that I've used repeatedly. So why would I need to get comfortable with them? Retrospects a bitch. <laughs> yeah. That should have been my clue that I was doing something that was going to fall apart on me because I shouldn't have had to get I shouldn't have had to get to know those characters again because I already know them and the fact that I did meant that I was actually writing original characters and giving them fandom names I changed so much about them they no longer felt like I it, it no longer felt like I knew them and that was that was a big problem that I did not even see until I was in the writing. Okay, so like looking at this, I don't think the relationship between Tony and Rampart can happen immediately, or even like I don't even think he should even express any kind of interest in Tony because, um, if I was Tony and he expressed it after he's been briefed on the SGC and the trust, I would assume this motherfucker's trust. 
He's trying to get in my pants to, to keep me off stride. Right. So my first plot point is Tony meets the group, Hammond, Rampart, Tom Morrow, and Vance. And then he gets a brief on the trust and the SGC from Hammond. Um, and then my next point would be um, probably Tony having to tell Gibbs he's leaving or he's moving off the team. You know, and him pitching, you know, him having a man tantrum about it, a mantrum. Um, that's what Gibbs does. Um, and then I would, um, a mantrum, yeah. Um, uh, and then, um, let's see. <laughs> you totally can. Mantrum. Um, Tony, um, so it's off Gibbs' team. Hashtag mantrum. Um then um, he's going to have to do some task force assembling. So that gives me an opportunity to reuse some of the work I did in Deep Blue Sea. Because he'll be able to pull some FBI agents. Deep Blue Sea is the last part of the Feeding Frenzy. And I created a team for, for Tony at Homeworld Security. And if he's doing a multi-agency um, team... He would he would pull in people that he can trust that he knows personally, um, which would honestly probably include Spencer Reed. I think that I would pull in Spencer Reed. I think he needs a criminal profiler for this. Um, he needs one with a large body of information that crosses lots of disciplines, which to me says Spencer Reed. Um, um, and anytime I have an opportunity to reuse character profiles, I'm gonna. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna put a deep um let's see deep blues C team. Not all of them, some of them. And so definitely a Spencer and probably um <sighs> look at my list for that. See at this point in my process is where I would stop and make a character list. Because I mean, I know I have two main characters that I want to work with, and I probably already have character profiles for them. But even right here at this point, when I'm trying to build his team, I need a character list. Oh no, my deep blue characters, my deep blue sea character list is written down somewhere in a notebook I've probably already filed. I agree, Gnome. I totally agree. So probably not Lily Rush, but. You had Martin and Vivian, and you had um, the guy. I, I would the guy from Blindspot. Johnson. So Vivian Johnson is a definite because I love her, and I feel like she got the short end of the stick in her canon. And see, this is a difference in the way Kira and I plot. Actually, is that I don't worry about the character list, the full character list, this early on. I need um, to know who's going to be in my story, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually gone into the writing process at times and then made the decision about who's going to be in the story on the fly. Not you, not in a big project, but it's just it's not um it's not it's not it's not really critical to my to my planning process is to know every character available to me. I mean, we talk about it as part of the process. Like when we talked about characters last night, we talked about determining who your secondary characters are. It's not uncommon for me to just know like a couple of them and just ignore the rest. But that's the way that's just works for me. And you have to figure out what works for you. So um but oftentimes I won't know tertiary characters that I need until I'm in the writing. 
Right. Like, I think most people don't. If if you're picking all your tertiary characters um, up front, you're planning way, way, way. Unless I have a tertiary character I that I use often. Like if I'm going to use Stow Flourish. I mean, Stow Flourish is always going to be the one who runs um, Flourish and Bots for me. So, you know, he's tertiary. I don't really know much about him beyond the fact that he owns the store and his brother's a butthole who lives in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I typically don't have much detail about the tertiary characters, other than I try to sometimes I'll give them a characteristic, like like let's say I know that I'm going to need um, a couple of cops, right? I might say that one of them is an overbearing cop and the other one is really sweet. So I might like ca characterize them that way. But beyond that, I just don't put any thought into it because and when it comes to canon characters that are tertiary, I put zero thought into it. Because they're canon characters. It's like, okay, um, Madam Malkin is Madam Malkin. If he's gonna go shopping, he's probably gonna run into her. But if it's important to you, so like, we, we've done some plotting where those like redoing the expedition in the past. So like, Kira is the type of plotter who would work up her expedition list in advance, and I am not because I don't care. I'm like, I'll get there. There's a hundred people. I'll decide who they are later. <laughs> Which <laughs> is. So I would not write a list of a hundred people, but I pro I did make a list of like department heads when I was doing um when I was redoing um when I was writing hold my coffee because everything was different. Yeah. But I see people get very in Stargate stories get very wrapped around the axle trying to determine who all's going on the expedition, which can be very important to some degree. On the other hand, you can get too caught up in the nitpicky details and spend all of your plotting time working up an expedition list, and then you have no plot. That's so ridiculous. It, okay. I have my names. Okay. Vivian Johnson, Martin Fitzgerald. They're both from Cold Case. No, they're both from... Without a Trace. Missing. that. Without a trace. Uh, Dean Bates, he was on um, Stargate Atlantis, and he works for um, the IOA. Um, Mick Rawson, he's from the FBI. He was part of the FBI criminal suspect behavior. Um, he's a sniper, because we need one of those. Amita from Numbers, because I like to give her a life outside of Charlie. And Spencer Reed. I'm not mad at that coffee. She's She's been holding my coffee. Oh! Okay. Like, <laughs> I was like, what? Because <laughs> when, it, when it first happened, I put it on Facebook. I said, someone tell me I shouldn't write female McKay anymore. Hold my coffee, lady holder. <laughs> and it became became the title of the of the series. So that gives me a team. Um, and Tony will pick those. And Honestly, I think that I probably, and if this is a novella, I think that just by the briefing, Gibbs Mantrum setting up the team, that I have room for one more plot point. That's plot point five. So what would the climax of your first episode be? I mean, what is the, what would you be working towards? Well, if I, if I, if I want to thread the idea of the romance with Randolph Rampart into it, then I think they need to have another interaction before the end of the novella. Um, so the novella has Tony going off, setting up his team. So the briefing, he goes off, starts setting up his team. There's probably some time skips. And then he has a come to be, come back together with Rampart. Maybe they meet alone. 
Maybe um, Rampart is... Um, I would say that Rampart's the spear on this as far as like as far as the Joint Chiefs are concerned. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe he has a meeting with Rampart to um, go over what he's done and what he has planned and, you know, just like, you know, get the, um, um, get the ball rolling. rolling. But the thing about writing a, a mini plot like this is that it gives you a lot of room for organic um, or spontaneous uh, creativity, you know. Um, so, if you have too much room, or you'll have 50K. I'm not sure if this is my id speaking or if this is just a good idea. So, <laughs> if Tony's role is secret, right? Because one of the things is you don't want to let it out who the head of any kind of intelligence operation is, right? So, if Tony's role is secret, before they break up the meeting, they could have a. If Tony and Rampart, so let's say people know that Rampart's involved, he might be being watched, right? Mm -hmm. So, what if they come up with a. Um, in the event they need to talk. Oh, yeah, you see where I'm it's going? A pretend relationship. Fit. Pretend, it's relationship. A pretend relationship. I yeah. fucking love it. I'm, yes, I am on board this train. Pretend relationship. Yes. And Rampart may not even know the meet's coming, right? And but they've agreed that this is how they'll meet. As Tony, somebody maybe they say somebody is going to approach you and pretend to be in a relationship with you, and that'll be your point of contact. And so then Rampart's in a um, coffee shop or something, since we're talking about coffee, and <laughs> Tony sidles up to him, drapes an arm around his goes, "Hi, honey." <laughs> <laughs> Rampart's thinking, "Merry Christmas to me." <laughs> So this obviously can't be a world where, where dumbass don't tell exists. Right. Or it's been repealed, you know. And Rampart's being a good example. It is not almost a Dance coffee shop AU. I'm putting her back in the corner. <laughs> I don't know why you pulled her out. That was just wishful thinking on your part. Well, we're not seeing her in the corner because she's invisible. <laughs> it took me a few minutes to figure out what was going on. Um, but there she is <laughs> See, in, in the sin bin where she's supposed to be. But the, um, yeah, I think that'd be really, that'd be fun because pretend relationship fix can be really entertaining or they can be kind of like an eye roll, but that'd be, I think that'd be really entertaining that, you know, Tony's being scrutinized as people think he's the side piece of, you know, the commandant of the Marine Corps. <laughs> so they don't pay <laughs> any attention to him. What he's really up to. Right, which is passing information. I love tongue. the idea of it, and it would be really amusing if it's Tom Morrow's suggestion. Yeah, like he ships it, like he ships it. <laughs> Maybe he's sitting at the table and he sees some chemistry between the two of them, and he knows they both are at least bisexual. And he's like, So, for passing information on to General Rampart. <laughs> 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 he would also have to hide it at, at NCIS what he was doing. So um, he would have to. Um, it would have to. Um, they would have to have a front for a different thing, like what these people are doing. Cold case unit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cold case unit also allows them a lot of time to be in the office behind closed doors. 
he would see it as a demotion, as a punishment. Mm-hmm. Even move to cold cases. Oh my god! And so it could get out publicly that Rampart and Tony are dating. And then you later on in the future episode, you could have Tony getting really annoyed. You know something? This is really putting a crimp on my love life because I can't date anybody without people frowning at me for fucking around on the Commandant of the Marine Corps. So you're just going to have to put out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting laid here. <laughs> so how old did we decide? What's the minimum age that Rampart could be at this point? About 50. So, how old would Tony be? Um, Early in Vance's tenure or late in Vance's tenure? Um, I would say probably... I want to avoid dead air. So, before dead air. So, about... On the same time that they meet and dance with me. So, about 37. Except, you know... So, he's 37. Ish. If that's based upon about season eight or nine. No, I mean about, sorry, about season six or seven. So you, so you want to avoid season eight. So if you're looking somewhere between six and seven, which would be between 2008 and 2009. Because the reason I picked the time period I did for Dance With Me is that that's when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. 2010, that would be season eight. Right. And then it skirted up right up against the episodes of the, um, the, um, the events of Dead Air, which is why I ended that short the way I did. And got so much grief. Right. So if you want to go with the exact same timeline, he'd be about 38. So 38. Yeah, I think I do. Um, so that's just before dead air. So 12 years isn't awful. I mean, honestly, no. 20 years for these two, I don't think is awful. Tony's a grown ass man, but you know. And Randolph Rampart would be a very fit and um, healthy 50. My main concern with a, with a, with a relationship where there's a big age gap gap like that is that you know are you thinking about performance issues over there no i'm thinking about the character dying and then Tony being by himself and see i'm sitting here thinking about lack of sex and she's not thinking about (laughs) i write fantasy there are no erectile dysfunctions in my work (laughs) because that's not hot no offense dudes Randolph could be, um, he could be from a line that's very long-lived, you know, so. I don't believe in erectile dysfunction. You not believing it doesn't change anything. (laughs) It doesn't happen in my fic. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying. It's a terrible, terrible urban legend. What is this urban legend called? Actually, they both could have the ATA gene, yeah, and uh, that they both are longer lived as a result of it. So, but yeah, that's usually my main concern for um, a, a big age gap um, is it's that, you know, one is going to outlive the other. Um, it's, that's why I always try to make Bilbo battle more than a hobbit so he will live um, and grow old with Thorin. Because otherwise, Bilbo would probably die before Thorin. Probably, but I mean, Thorin's so old that I'm just not sure that, you know, if Bilbo's got another 60 or 70 years, that might be reasonable considering Thorin's age. I mean, we know that Bilbo actually lives quite a long time because of the ring, but do you really want to extend his life with that evil ring? No. No. 
<laughs> well, but he also comes from the same line as um, the old Took, so he could easily live yeah. as old as Gerontius did, or however you pronounce his name. I really hate these weird-ass names. I know. <sighs> um, so that's episode one. And this is actually a good time to point out the, the episode format um, in that this is... Um, I like to do an event, a big event, and the ramifications. So the big event is Tony being called into this meeting with Hammond, Rampart, Tom Morrow, and um, Leon Vance. And his whole life gets kind of upended. His career has been changed beyond measure. His scope of the planet, of the universe, is being changed out from underneath him. So this is a big event. He's having to process all this. Number one, you know, there, there are people leaving the planet on a regular everyday basis. There are real live aliens. There's been, there was almost an alien invasion and there are a bunch of fuckheads on earth who are being really awful about it. <laughs> They're not on the right team. So we need to fix that. And so, you know, and that's a lot of upheaval for him to deal with. And, and when, I, when I do episodes, I like to do it um, event and consequences. Event and consequences. That keeps it like kind of discreet. So I don't end up um, leaving uh, lots of dangling pieces. You don't need anything dangling. The lifespan between Spock and Kirk. One of the things I did in Tangled Destinies was imply that Spock would grow old and die with Jim because of their bond. And that he is perfectly okay with that because he'd rather not live without him. Um, so, you know. <laughs> because I just, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like. Really I, I really like stories like in The Hobbit or Star Trek, or whatever that resolve the age that resolve the lifespan difference. Um, so like stories like in The Hobbit, where there's a, there's a couple at least that have when you bond with somebody, um, that your your lifespan is shared. So, mm -hmm. that yeah, they did that. The elves do that in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so I mean that you could. I mean, since it's kind of it's already kind of already baked in, it's it's a really practical thing to do, um, and rather than just have the idea, especially like I mean, the for all the, it's not canon, but for all the shippers who ship Gimli and Legolas, that's a really deeply unfortunate lifespan situation. And Tolkien handled it, handled it beautifully when it, when when Gimli um, got close to death, Legolas took his ass to the shore, built a boat. It took his dwarf to the Undying Lands. <laughs> Clearly, Tolkien shipped it. Um, but I mean, you, you got to do something like that, right? Yeah, as you, you got to build your own boat. Fuck you. I can't take my dwarf. I'm taking my dwarf. <laughs> Let me go build my own boat. I don't need your boat. There's a time travel fic where Gimli travels back in time from the Undying Lands. Um... I 100% want to read this. You haven't read this? Willow. Tell us more. Which one? I think we're almost, I, th I think we're kind of done with the podcast. Do any of you have any questions about the mini plot and how to work on it? Because um, that's your homework. Um, so that when you come back tomorrow at the with a mini plot, four or five plot points um, for a novella. 
Um, do you have any questions? And mini plot in the sense of a small plot for a novella. There's a there's a type of plot called a mini plot that actually is different than what we're talking about. That is about um, it's internally it's internal conflict motivated. It's about characters facing their demons. We're not talking about that. Yeah, and I'm, I will share the attachment again with you guys just so that you will have it. I think uh, this is the, um, this becomes subjective, Edie, because um, the number of points you need depends on um, your word economics. Like when I look at a scene and say, okay, Tony meets a group of people, Hammond, Rampart, Tom Morrow, and Vance. How many words am I going to need to tell this? I'm thinking four or five K. That's a lot of big, that's a lot of bigness in that room, right? Yeah. Um, he gets briefed on the trust in the SGC. That's another four-ish K. Um, he has, uh, you know, gives his tantrum. That's another four or five K. I'm already at 50-ish. Um, then um, the team assembling, I think that most of that we done in the background. And then I will probably, like, um, uh, have my Rampart meeting and he will tell Rampart who his team is, who, um, who he's chosen to back him up um, in, um, in his investigation. So, oh yeah, I've read that. So it really, it depends on how many um, words you need to tell a specific point. And remember that your, your, your word count goal for a novella is, I want to say between 20 and 30 K. Is that, is that good? 20 and 30 or 20 and 40. I mean, because if novel doesn't start to 50, 40, 40, 40K is a dead zone, right? So that's why I usually think that a novel, a novella is 20 to 40. Um, they usually if you, there are people who do a micro breakdown, the short story is under 75 words and a novelette is like 7,500 to 20,000. And then you have the 20 to 40 is the novella. But it, regardless, most somewhere around twenty thousand is where novella starts. I I say till forty because otherwise forty thousand words is nothing, right? If fifty is where novel starts for most people, then what is forty? <laughs> it's the dead zone. It's what no one wants to publish. Either you publish under forty because then you can put an anthology with two other works, um, or you publish um, a novella on it, a, a novel on its own at fifty. But that that dead zone between forty and fifty is kind of a, is kind of unpublishable in the print market. Yeah, but I mean, with EPUB, a lot. I mean, some there's some publishers like uh, Har Harlequin's ebook imprint. They don't even worry about, so they actually look for shorter stories. Right. But you have to pay attention to their word count, like submission guidelines. So, but I mean, I in my head, it's always stuck in my head that twenty to forty is a novella. So I shoot for thirty because I know I'm wordy. So I don't ever, I don't ever plot for thirty-five because if I plot for thirty-five, it's going to be forty-five. Right. Right. You know. Okay. So Edie asks, are there any suggestions for someone who writes three to five K fix? Do my fic if it works. Um, remember earlier when I talked about how a chapter has a beginning, a middle, and an end? Um, so basically your little your little three five K fix equal a chapter. So how about instead of um sitting down with the idea that you're going to plot a novel. Why don't you sit down and write down five ideas for little short stories that are connected? And if you put all five of those little ideas together, you get a novella. And with that, 
idea. I mean, it's it's an unusual way to structure writing a novella, but you'd need a po- a plot point in every chapter. Because if yeah, you're writing, so f- each little idea becomes a plot point, right? And you want so let's say you're going to do five, you want your fourth to be the biggest bang. That's your climax, right? Ish. You don't want to put in the middle, you know. So four or so four, maybe five. If you've got very steep falling action, you can have your big bang in the fifth one. But you typically don't want your 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 falling action to be like Wiley Coyote off a cliff. I mean, unless you do. (laughs) I try not to. Yeah. So if you if you plan five connected short stories and you want your biggest moment to be probably in the fourth one, but maybe in the fifth one. And, but each one needs to have its own big moment. They're all connected. They're all in the same basic storyline. If you do that, then you could work on them. What are the mechanics to making that like flow together well so that it feels like one story? Well, for me, what I would do is I would kind of soften the um, the climax moment for each of the little ideas so that it um, so that it will flow into the next story slash chapter without there being a kind of like a roller coaster feeling. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So instead of going like, you know, up and then down and then up and down, you would be like up and then you would just kind of ride it a little bit and just ride it to the next one. And then, you know, by the fourth one, you're starting to come down a little bit and then you hit your climax and then you you relax and take a cigarette break. Yeah. Metaphorical. Or have a a fun brownie. Or have a fun brownie. But if you're having problems writing bigger works, that's how I would, I mean, it it doesn't hurt to try. You know what I mean? And compartmentalizing it might make it seem less overwhelming to you. So if you've got an idea that is big enough to support like 25,000 words, which usually I would say most people don't have a problem coming up with an idea that is that big. It's just, how do I make it into one story? Just make sure it is big enough. But then once you've got, uh, you know, and then make sure that all of your stories, all of your individual stories are in the pursuit of your main goal. So let's say your main goal is um, uh, you want the climax of your story to be Tony being promoted to director of NCIS. Okay. Um, You wouldn't want like your second story to be that he goes to the FBI. That's probably counterintuitive. So just remember, your main goal is Tony getting promoted to the director of NCIS, and then all of your little mini stories need to, in some fashion, be marching towards that goal. And I wouldn't be mad about somebody writing a story where Tony, in a realistic fashion, becomes director of NCIS, because realistic is not a senior field agent gets promoted to director. (laughs) I'm just saying. Um, Any other questions? Did we miss any questions? I don't see we missed any questions. No, now, I'll be honest. So Sometimes, in, uh, somebody mentioned in the chapters, if you have chapters, I do about five to six K chapters. So yes, in a novella, I would have six chapters. However, I do tend to structure novellas into three arcs, arc one, arc two, arc three. And occasionally there's an arc four because my falling action ran away from me. Um, A lot of my episode work isn't chaptered. Yeah, most I of mean, my episodes. You do your, you write your episodes as a one shot usually. Yeah, even the fifty k ones. Don't get me on hard on that because because I, I don't even know why I did it. It's been decades. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is this: 
Um, I find it fundamentally impossible to write just six chapters. It's hard. It would it's, ha- it's a weird number. It, it would have to be five. I would, I would rather have five fat chapters than six slim chapters. <laughs> no, I could do. I could definitely do six. I couldn't do seven. I. <laughs> no. 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 Um, I prefer one. So somebody says the falling action would be what? A day in his life. The falling action is anything that occurs after your climax. So that's not something to be, that's a mechanic we haven't really talked about. But what you don't want to do is have the action coming up again once you've hit the main and your main climax of your story. So if the main climax is, let's say, Tony's promotion to director of NCIS, what you then wouldn't want to do is in your falling action, which actually might be pretty, you can have fairly steep falling action. It just depends upon how many loose ends you have to tie up. What you would want to do is have an attempt on his life in the falling action, because that's bringing the action back up again. That, right? That's a roller coaster moment. Right. So if your big moment, let's say at the end of chapter four, is Tony achieves his promotion, he's promoted to director. The falling action might be wrapping up like team assignments. He has to fire Abby. I don't know. Whatever. Um, you never get your, you know, through your day. He has to send Ziva back to Israel. I don't know. This kind of stuff. And so you're wrapping up <laughs> details. Um, so whatever in the story hasn't been dealt with, you're wrapping up. There might be some minor little things that you're showing about how his life has changed. Sometimes your falling action actually occurs like in an epilogue where you kind of slow the pace down and you jump forward in time and show what's happened in his life since his promotion. But what you don't want to do is bring the action up again. I mean, what I would do for that, for that falling action is that I would have Tony um, coming home, you know, taking off his jacket. Um, the person of your choice is in the kitchen. They've got a bottle of wine open. How was your day? My day was shitty. I had to shoot somebody. My day was great. I had to shoot somebody. <laughs> Depending on who it is, you know. <laughs> you want to get laid. You know, just, to, just give him a really uh, successful domestic moment to let the reader know that not only is he at the top of his game at work, but he's got it locked, locked down at home, too. And, and and things are fine. And he's totally tolerating that, that, that sock situation. <laughs> <laughs> if it's Randolph, yeah, you can come home and go, how was your day, honey? I made a Marine cry. Told you to be, so did I. <laughs> Get out the good wine. <laughs> Anyways, so I hope this podcast was super helpful and you guys do your homework. And tomorrow we are um, going to do a questionnaire on writing romance. Um, I was asked to do one for the writing locker on um, the Harmony and Company writing locker on Facebook. So we're going to do those questions and then we're going to have a discussion about writing romance in general for the podcast. And so I hope you guys um, will join me tomorrow. um, we'll, we'll join us tomorrow and we will we will do that and so do your homework which is to write you know just to work on your little plot document to see what you come up with and then we'll also take some time to answer questions about that for anything you might have um, come across in the actual process of doing that um, so um, say good night Jilly good night everyone <laughs> <laughs>